You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, we're in the book of Psalms and 1 Samuel. Uh, we think about Psalms only because of the fact that David is attributed to have, have having written half of them. 75 of the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible are, are attributed to David. And yet in the midst of all the wonderful material that we have, the poetry, the songs, and the worship that comes out of Psalms, uh, we're not sure that any of them were written at this stage of his life that we're studying right now, which is, of course, uh, today we're looking at the text of Goliath and David as a boy. And um, yet I think that the inspiration that, that accompanied the Psalms that were written later in David's life, when he became king, when he was running from Saul, when he had sinned and so on, uh, the inspiration came as a, as a shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem, watching the sheep. In fact, Psalm 8, for example. <clears throat> o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That, that scripture, and he talks about the glory of God in the stars and the moon that he sees. And in verse 3 of that text, he says, and, and having considered all this, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should even care. In the, in the midst of the night sky, as David was sitting under the stars, he had this sense of the immensity of God, the Creator, and, and the puniness of man. And he thought, why would God consider me? I think that the Scriptures indeed give evidence that the spiritual formation of David largely took place alone in his early walk as he meditated on the law of God, the creation of God, the characteristics of God. And as he, as he began to do that, he began to understand something important about who God is <clears throat> and who He is. I was talking with Doug this past week about the fact that, that uh, our, our growth in Christ and our formation as believers is really all about both this alone time with God and this time with other brothers and sisters. There has to be this balance. It cannot be an either or. It has to be a both and. And we thought about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote where he said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community and let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Well, I think that at the beginning of David's life, there was much time alone with God. And we see this come to be a strength in his life because of what he did with his time alone before God. Let me read to you a quote and uh, see what you think about this. This is from a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp. He said this, No one is more influential in your life than you are, because no one talks to you more than you do. Whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And the things that you say to you about you are formative of the way that you live your life. I believe that statement, that principle, is really a part of why we see this young boy, David, emerge on the public scene with the army of Israel as a, as a man that was going to be a difference maker in the kingdom of Israel. We're going to take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so if you have your Bibles... I would ask you to take a look at it with me. <clears throat> and I'm going to just walk through some of the text with you before I have you stand for 
the actual reading of the confrontation that it's leading to. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1, we read about the fact that the Philistines gathered and formed their forces assembled at Sukkah in Judah, and that's on Israelite territory. First observation I want you to note is that the Philistines, God's enemies, come and they camp out, they gather, they assemble on the, on the promised land. Okay, And uh, in verse 2 we read that Saul and the Israelites gathered in the valley of Elah across from them. Important note, doesn't come through in the English translation sometimes. The first word gathered in verse 1 is active mode. The second one in verse 2 of Israel is passive. So in other words, Philistines actively gathered, initiated aggressively attacking, getting ready to attack Israel. But in verse 2, it does not say that they Saul mustered the troops and gathered. It says rather that they, they were gathered. That's the passive voice. They were gathered. So we're not getting an indication of a, a leader here in Saul. Verse 3, we get the setting, the Philistines on one hill, the Israelites on the other, a valley between them where the battle would take place. Verse 4 introduces us to Goliath, this this Philistine soldier that is over 9 feet tall, armored with 125 pounds of of bronze that he carried around on his body just for armor, not counting his helmet and his leg coverings and spear. In addition, he had a, a shield bearer that walked out in front of him. The bronze armor is mentioned because of the, the, the glitter of it and the cost, but also because it's reminding us, as a few chapters earlier did, that at this time in history, the Philistines had a monopoly on all metalworking. And so the only two soldiers likely in Israel that had, had a sword and, and a whole set of armor were Saul and his son Jonathan. And in this passage of Scripture, we see in verse 8 that Goliath steps out from the ranks of the Philistine line, And he shouts at the army of Israel. And what does he say? He says something very ironical. He says, choose a man that will come down to me. Why is that ironical? Well, it's ironical because they'd already chosen a man. Israel had already chosen a man. We've been reading about this. They had said, we want a king like all the other nations. God said to Samuel, give him a king. And they chose Saul. Saul was their king. He was head and shoulders taller than any of the other Israelites were told in Scripture. Now, he's not as tall as Goliath. But if any man should have been the one to go down and fight Goliath by, the, by faith in the living God, it should have been Saul. But instead, in verse 11, we read that Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and terrified. The scene switches in verse 12. We're now on the hills of Bethlehem. And introduced to the youngest son of Jesse, a boy named David. Now, we'd been introduced to him last chapter, last week, chapter 16, when he was anointed king. I want you to know that took place in private. And this, in chapter 17, is David's first public appearance. The last part of chapter 16 talked about David being called to Saul's court to play his harp to comfort the troubled soul of Saul. That, most commentators believe, chronologically takes place after what we're reading in chapter 17 today, after Saul takes note of who this boy David is. And so we read in the scriptures that David is called by his father, Jesse, off of the hills of Bethlehem to visit his three older brothers who are fighting the Philistines on the front lines. In verse 20, we read that he gets up early one morning takes the 12-mile journey 
arrives just in time to see the armies gathering on both hillsides. And then Goliath steps forward and starts yelling his defiant comments as he has been doing for 40 days, we read. And in response, David indignantly, verse 26, says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, I want you to know, first importance in this verse, I want you to know that David's response to this whole situation is theological. It's all responded to theologically, not sociologically, not politically, not in terms of how much can we do against them? How can we take this guy down? He doesn't respond that way. His response is theological. He is appalled that no one is standing up in defi- and man is defying God, the living God. <clears throat> Eliab, his oldest brother, hears David talking and we see a sibling jealousy flare up, perhaps because He, as the oldest, thought he should have been anointed as king prior, or perhaps it's because he's just really sick of this little kid brother trying to be a man, and he's uh, in a man's world. Stop talking. The word gets around to Saul that there's a soldier out there, someone that's saying, I can take this guy. Verse 32, he boldly declares before Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Incredible words. Saul does not take them seriously. But after some time, David is very convincing, and so Saul agrees to let David go into battle against Goliath. We pick up the scripture now in verse 38. And if you will stand with me, if you're able to, let's listen to what God's Word teaches. Chapter 17, beginning with verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but because he was not used to them. He said, I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. He, he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down upon the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated.
We all have giants in our lives. They make us feel small and insecure. If we respond to them in fear, they rob us of good judgment. They shrink our our lives. They rob God of glory that He could receive through us. If we respond to them in faith, they actually expand our lives. They increase our joy. They respond with a growth in faith and delight in God. And the simplest lesson that we learn today from the text of David and Goliath is that fighting giants is all about knowing the God that you serve. And so with the four points that are in the sermon insert, I'd like to walk through the text quickly and suggest four things. First of all, David's knowledge of God enabled him to live by faith because in his past experience he had proven the faithfulness of God. This is very important. We see in verses 34 to 37 in the Scripture when David is giving an account to Saul of why he thinks he can take down the, the, the giant. He goes back to talk about what he did on the hills of Bethlehem when he was a shepherd. And a bear or a lion would come and take off a sheep and, and he would chase that bear or lion down and he would, he would kill it and, and save or rescue the sheep from this mouth of the bear or the lion. And in verse 37, he concludes, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. It's a simple equation. And I want you to see that David's faith and courage in the face of this giant rested in an experiential knowledge of God. Having seen the hand of God deliver him before, in David's time alone with God, David's experience of being delivered by God on many occasions gave him the courage to trust God in the present. And similarly, you and I, in order for you and I to take the next faith step, in order for you and I to take on not just the lion or the bear that comes against us, but the giants that will come against us, for you and I, we must reach down deeper into our history of having walked with God of having had a personal, alone experience with God, where we have seen Him deliver us. We have seen, nobody else might have seen it. But we have seen God meet us in a way that only God could have. And we reach down into that experience and we say, God who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the present and I will not fear. God will start with the lions and the bears And He will lead you to the giants. So, in what you're facing today, I ask you these questions. What is it that is defying the will of God in your life? God wants you to do something. God's leading you somewhere. He wants you to be free from something. And it's defying this fear. This giant is defying the living God in your life. I want you to notice that if we are defining the giants according to the Scriptures that we are looking at, we must define them by that, those things that trespass on God's property. They challenge God's will. They threaten God's people. And they defy God's power. Those are the things that we must identify as giants. We cannot conclude that giants are anything that gets in the way of our wants or desires. We have to understand that it's about God and His plans for His people. Secondly, David's knowledge of God enabled him to live by faith because in his eyes of faith, 
he saw a puny Goliath and a giant God. When others looked out across the valley at Goliath, they saw an opponent too powerful to defeat. When David looked at Goliath, he saw a target too big to miss. Let me share some key verses. Chapter 16, verse 7, we looked at last week. It's on the banner at the front of our sanctuary here. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We judge by the external appearances. God judges by the heart. God's not bound by what is seen or heard. God is all-powerful. Chapter 17, verse 11. Saul and the Israelites hear the threats of Goliath. And it says they were dismayed and terrified. Verse 24. Now they see him. They see his stature. It says in the Scripture, they ran from him with great fear. Verse 26. David hears and sees Goliath. And what is his response? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, friends, Samuel and David were looking at the same giant. Samuel and David were looking out upon the same figure across the valley, nine feet tall. One of them was afraid and ran away from him. The other was angry and ran toward him in battle. What was the difference maker? And if we go back to the scriptures that we looked at last week, the difference maker was the heart of Saul and the heart of, of David. Saul's heart was proud. Saul's reference point was Saul. David's heart was humble. David's reference point was the living God. Because of Saul's heart being proud, he was at the center. He compared his stature with that of Goliath and he knew he couldn't win. David's heart was humble and God was the center. He compared Goliath's stature to God and he said, I can't lose. That's the difference maker. It's as simple as that. You might say to me, well, is it really that simple? It really is that simple. We make it complicated. See, if you and I are our own reference point in whatever things that come against us to not in, enable us to fully live out the promises of Christ, everything that is yes in Christ Jesus, then there will be many giants in the land that you will fi find. But if God is our reference point, there will be no giant too big to face. David said to Goliath, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Try that on. Everyone looking on the battlefield that day would have put their money on Goliath. Because they, they judged by what they saw. But the thing that they didn't see, what was invisible, was that David's strength was invisible. David's strategy was invisible. And David's armor was invisible. We read in Ephesians chapter 6 that our armor and our strength and our strategy is also invisible. It's invisible. In chapter 6 of Ephesians verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not physical. It's invisible. It's against the rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world and spiritual forces of heavenly realms. So put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will take your stand and stand your ground. See, just like David 
ran into battle with an invisible strategy, an invisible strength, and an invisible armor, so do we face the giants in our lives in that same invisible way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Listen to the defying language of this verse. Every pretension and argument and knowledge and thought that is against, defiant against the knowledge of God. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. Our weapons are invisible. Goliath had defied the living God. Chapter 1743, David, he had actually cursed David in the name of the Philistine gods. And so David responded by saying, oh, this is not about David. This is about God. This is a power encounter now. Before I move on, I just want to make a, a moment here to, to reflect on a, a very important thing that is easily misunderstood. We say we believe in scriptures like 2 Corinthians 10, Ephesians 6, in our Bibles and many others, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's a, it's a spiritual warfare going on. When I see people mocking God, when I see people belittling making light of Jesus Christ. Not just the historical figure, but the man of God, the the living God in flesh. When I see people doing that, whether it's in the name of freedom of speech or strongly held religious views, whether it's a late night comedian or some religious fanatic, it grieves my heart. It just grieves my heart. And, And actually, I find myself in pity for them because they mostly do it Most people that defy the true and living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, do so out of absolute ignorance and spiritual blindness. And our response to that is never to be a physical, aggressive response. Jesus never calls us to blow up places, to bear arms and go out and fight because His name is being maligned in the world. Jesus never calls us to that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, put away your sword. And the Apostle Paul clarifies it in so many scriptures here, as I've said, that we do not fight a flesh and blood warfare. Our weapons are not of this world. But they are filled with divine power to tear down strongholds. God does not need us physically to defend his name or his cause. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. David's knowledge of God enabled him, thirdly, to live by faith because in his zeal for the Lord, he wanted the Lord to know, he wanted the world to know the God of Israel. From his very first encounter with Goliath, David's response was for God's reputation. His primary northern star was God's reputation, God's honor, God's glory. That's what he was concerned for. And so in verse 36, his reason for confidence against this giant was he's defied the armies of the living God. Verse 45, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. The key verse of this whole scripture to me is in verse 46. The key verse of the whole chapter is 
the world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's the key verse. David was not in the battle for himself, not because he wanted to overcome kid brother syndrome, not because he had a death wish, not because the Philistines were on Judah's territory, not even because the army of Israel was being humiliated. Ultimately, primarily, what David was driven by, called by, motivated by, strengthened by, was the honor of the living God. No one defies the living God. And so God found in David a willing and able servant. Hard perspective to keep when we take aim at the giants in our lives. But we must remember that the giants that we take aim at must not be for our own prosperity, for our own comfort, for our own desires, but rather, as I've said, those things that defy the living God, those things that are against God's will and purposes for His people. David's knowledge of God enabled him to live by faith because finally, in his assurance of God's victory, he did not fear for his own life. Incredible scriptures here. We notice that David's weapon of choice was only offensive in nature, only on the take, only on the move. Nothing defensive about David's armor at all. In what he put on and what he wore into battle, there was nothing defensive, only offensive. Verse 48, we read that as the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran toward the battle line. Offensive, only on the take. Because David's defense was knowing God. David's defense was knowing that God was with him. In chapter 16 of Matthew, in verse 18, we read about this time when Jesus is asking the twelve, who are people saying that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because not anything flesh and blood has revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he said, and you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it or be standing against it. You see, the the picture of that passage of Scripture is not this cowering little church behind walls that are closed, doors that are closed, uh, with the dirty, dangerous world out there on the street. It is not a picture of a church where on the one hillside there's this cowering uh, army running back to their tents when the big giant comes out and defies the armies of Israel. The picture that Jesus had when he spoke to Peter on that day was a militant and a, a aggressive and a moving out in the kingdom of God church. A, a group of people on the take, not on the, on the defense. And we don't have that mentality sometimes. And yet the Scriptures call us to it. Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon forged against you will stand. 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Hebrews 13, 5, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Romans 8, 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? Either we believe what God says in these promises in His Word, or we don't believe them. Either we will talk ourselves into what God says or we will talk ourselves out of it because you and I are the most influential people in our lives. So either we will talk ourselves out of what God says like Saul did or we will talk ourselves into what God says like David did and stand in his strength. Is there a safe place? Well, I'm not sure you should have become a Christian if you wanted to be safe in this world. 
Martin Luther's hymn, last week we sang it. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Do you know, once you've settled, once you've settled the matter, that even death is really not the highest priority in my life. Nothing, no one has anything on you. No, no one can stand against you. Is there a safe place? I'm not sure there's anything that God calls us to do that's necessarily safe. Ships are not made to, to stay in the harbor. They're meant to be going out to do something at open sea. And God raises up a people and a church to build His kingdom. And it's not going to be met with by, Oh, well, welcome here, Christians. We're glad you have a message for us. It's going to be met with opposition. The enemy, our our arch enemy, Satan, the world, the flesh, everything is against what God is wanting to do on planet Earth. Is it safe to send people to mission trips like Bolivia or India or Garden Hill even? Is it safe? Is Is it not safer in your own neighborhood? Probably. But maybe not. Is it safe to open up our building and let the community start using the building as, as we have been trying to do in the last few years more than ever? Is it safe when we, when we forgive someone who's going to maybe turn around and wrong us again? Is it safe to love the unloving or the unlovable? Is it safe to speak up in a classroom that stands for Christian value maybe? Is it safe to mention something at work as a Christian when you're, when you're just called to say something when the tide is just flowing against what God would have you say? Is it safe ever? Is one of our core values safety? As we get ready to conclude the service this morning, I would like to spend some time in prayer. And um, I am guilty of praying keep me safe prayers too often. And today what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to pray make us dangerous prayers. We're not used to those kinds of prayers. And yet when I look at this scripture of David and Goliath and I look at what God is teaching us, I believe that when we see David's sling and the stone that he had in that sling and the aiming of that sling that went into the forehead of Goliath and caused him to fall, that that is a picture of God's people taking aim in an offensive way by prayer at the things that stand in the way, the giants of the land that stand in the way of God's purposes, where the world is trespassing on God's territory, God's people, and and defying the living God. So what I'm going to ask us to do is, in a moment, I'm going to ask us to pray together. But I want to tell you that as I've been thinking about this in the last few months and as I've been taking note myself, I believe that God has us already on a trajectory of faith. He's already teaching us how to pray more bold, offensive on the take kinds of prayers. I want to share with you some just of what I've heard. You've probably heard even more than me, but here's what I've heard in recent months. How God is teaching us to pray. One of the obvious ones is the last couple of years, this 365 prayer watch for the city police. And, and the churches of, of Winnipeg took aim at crime and evil. And the chief 
of the police services, Chief Clunas said that there is a 17% decrease in violent crime this past year in the city of Winnipeg. And he attributed at least some of that to God's people praying. We, we need to take aim as David took aim and be on the take, on the offensive. I've had various people that have come to me and share with me private victories over specific things and specific answers to prayer I can't tell you about. I had a woman have a received an answer to prayer because the street that she was asked to pray for last year in Love Winnipeg campaign, she heard an answer to prayer a couple weeks ago on that street. It stared her in the face. I can tell you about a marriage that could have been destroyed and likely would have been, but it's being prayed back together. Praise God. I can tell you about a woman who was driving by, a woman in our church, sorry, that was praying for God to bring people from the community off the streets right into our worship services. And one Sunday this past year, a woman was driving by, no connection to our church, never been in this building. She felt compelled to walk in. She came in and she sat down in the worship service. Something overcame her. She started weeping. This woman that was praying for her saw that, went over, sat down, and began to pray with her. And they've developed a friendship. or praying for this woman's salvation. I've seen breakthroughs in life groups where people opened up beyond the safe things that they share normally so that they're the vulnerable and transparent things. And God's giants are coming down. Because fear and shame get put in the light and all of God's people aim at it. It has no chance. I can tell you about English conversation circles, specific answers to prayer, individuals finding jobs, finding friendship, getting healing in their marriages. Doug, Kevin and I are meeting weekly on Thursdays to pray just for more of God to happen this way. There's a prayer group every Thursday, first Thursday of each month, 10 a.m., meets in this room over here. We're asking God to grow that prayer group. Where are the giants that trespass on God's property and challenge God's will for His people and threaten us and defy the living God and His power? Where are they? What are they? What comes to mind in your life? What I'm asking that we do is that we take some time to take aim at those giants. And so I would ask you to stand with me right now. And as uh, Kevin and the worship team lead us, they're going to just be playing music in the background. And all that I want to hear in this room is a bunch of humming going on of, of God's people praying. I want you to turn to someone near you, beside you. I want you to name the giant that you feel God wants you to take aim at. And I want you to pray that God would overcome that, overpower that. I don't know what it is. You do. We're going to ask that God does it. If you don't have anybody beside you you want to pray with, you just want to keep this between you and God, then you just pray alone before God in a, in a loud voice or in a whisper. It doesn't matter to me. And let's take some time to just come before God and ask Him to take down some giants and give us faith and courage like that of David. And then I will conclude in prayer in a moment. Let's pray.
God, our Father, we thank you for hearing us this morning. We believe in your power, O God. You're the almighty God of David. God, as we think of that story, we realize that only one man ran into the battle that day. Only one man ran into the battle. Only one man fought Goliath. And yet all of Israel enjoyed the victory. And we think about Jesus Christ, our Savior, and on the day of Calvary, how just Jesus Christ rode into that. He walked up to that hill, carrying his own cross. He won the victory. And yet all of us won the victory because of Jesus. Oh God, help us to put our faith in him who is faithful. Help us, oh God, to believe in the one who has called us and who will do it in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray against the giants that have been mentioned this day. We pray against those things that are trespassing on your land and hindering your people from the will of God. We pray against things that defy the living God. Father, our ultimate goal is not our own comfort. Our ultimate goal is that the world will see that there is a God, a living God in the church of Jesus Christ on earth, oh God. We ask you, oh Father, pour out your grace upon us. Encourage us, make us bold that we might continue to pray for you specifically to bring down those things. Lord, we pray. We pray against the giant of disunity in our church. Wherever two or three or ten or twenty minds exist, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name to bring us into the unity of the Holy Spirit as we think about the plans you have for us in the future, O oh God. Bring down those giants that would divide us, confuse us, and alter us from pursuing your will, Father. And let your name be glorified. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus now, we just lift up to you all of those things that stand in the way. And we give you the praise and the glory for the victory already because we know that if God be for us, who could be against us? In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And God's people said, 